Hiya, welcome to another episode of Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability and the built environment. This week, we are joined by Loriana Padron of ECD Architects. Now, Loriana is head of sustainability there. So the theme of this week's episode was supposed to be, what is a head of sustainability? Now, what does one do? How does one come to be one? It could be a nebulous title, given how flexible a term sustainability is in and of itself. And we did talk about that. But for the better part, it ended up being about the value of POE, post-occupancy evaluation. Anyway, it was a great conversation. Loriana tells us about uh, the path that she's taken to becoming a head of sustainability at a leading sustainability-focused practice. We spent a lot of time revisiting the Wilmcourt House project in Portsmouth. I think the, the largest scale benefit of its type back then. I think still the largest benefit project where residents weren't decanted. Now, this is a project we have covered before, way back in uh, episode 23, when we had James Trainer, the MD of ECD, on the podcast. He told us all about it, but this time we're much more focused on the the POE aspect because Wilmcourt House is due to feature in the 10 Retrofits Revisited book, which is being put together by Marion Bailey and Julie Godefroy. We had Marion on the podcast to talk about that and other issues. Again, I suppose about POE a lot, much earlier in the year. I'll have all the links to the Wilmcourt House job that we featured then and the link to the episode in the show notes. If you do go back though, please bear in mind it's episode 23. So as badly produced as this podcast might be now, still, we have got a lot better. However, the content is excellent. And from our side, it's a full house again this week, although Jeff wasn't there at the beginning. He appears like a, a quarter of the way in. but. Before we drop in, I just want to get my apologies in earlier because embarrassingly, I got Loriana's name wrong at the point at which I introduce her. Woeful work from me. A year on from getting Ryan Phillips' name, totally wrong. Again, apologies, Ryan. I have done worse, though. I once got the groom's name wrong twice in a, a best man speech. Anyway, I'll keep you no longer. Hope you enjoy it. Thank you for joining us. How's life treating you? So so, it's um, tough. Um, yeah, quite busy with yeah. work and so many things. But you know, uh, it's mad, it's, isn't it? yeah. I remember being told that things would wind down before Christmas. <laughs> it's Not really. Yeah. Have you ever yeah. experienced that? I'm I'm working so much recently, and, and part of it is for the um, the retrofit academy, retrofit designer course that I'm editing. So. There's uh, a lot to be done. Yeah, how's that going? It's it's going really well. I've been asked to be the the editor of the retrofit designer course for the retrofit academy, and yep. um, I assembled a group of specialists to write and work each one of the sections uh, of the course. And we're developing the course at the moment, and you know it'll be out soon uh, next year. So watch this space. Uh, ECD, we are ourselves working on some of the modules as well, writing as part of, you know, apart from me editing the whole thing. So we're giving away uh, all our tips and secrets 
and how to do retrofit for the greater good. <laughs> <laughs> so that that course is going to be available through the Retrofit Academy. Yes, Retrofit Academy. Yes, and we're covering so much. We're covering uh, building physics, um, building services, air quality, ventilation, construction types, archetyping, large scale retrofit, design process, planning, heritage issues, fire, safety, overheating, flood resilience, embodied carbon, circular economy. Man. So it's going to be quite comprehensive. There's a lot in that then. So who's that for? It's mainly for architects and architectural technologists and building surveyors. And those will be able to be accredited under the Retrofit Academy, but anyone could do the course, but they won't be able to act as officially a, a retrofit designer as such. But, yeah. uh, you know, you, you could do it if, if you want to, <laughs> but, you know, anyone, anyone can. It sounds wise in terms of like one of the, the, the subjects or one of the points that we that keep coming up in the conversations that we have is that retrofit as a practice needs to be more designer-led. But because only designers are trained in design and the other uh, practitioners throughout the whole end-to-end process, they're not necessarily aware of what design is really. You know, it's not just a set of plans that get drawn up and then handed over. Like it's it's much more complicated than that. It, it, yes, of course, and and that's why you know everyone could could do the course. Our clients as well, the project managers working on the on the large scale retrofit projects as oh. well, uh, and you know that that would be amazing. So everyone can be upskilled, can understand the concepts that are required in in the projects. So yeah, it's. It's for everyone. Not everyone will be able to be called a retrofit designer because there are certain requirements for that. But yeah, it's really to upskill um, the people we need to do large-scale retrofit. I think every, everyone needs to be aware, even if they're not going to actually do it themselves, everyone should be aware because otherwise, how can you have that conversation if you don't understand what the other person is talking about? So you're absolutely right. It's really critical to have that uh, mass awareness of the skills. Okay. Yeah, I like that though. The idea of getting your clients trained up in doing it like just thinking about it from like my other life working in sort of branding when you've got a client who understands branding like they have a grounding in it from one degree or another it means that everything flows so much more easily because there's much less education involved and they're much more equipped to make better decisions or to understand why decisions are being made it's so much easier when um you have a a knowledgeable client that can give you a clear brief uh, and they know exactly what they want and, you know, they give it to you in writing, targets, everything. But that happens very rarely, I have to say. Yeah, man, <laughs> same. Yeah, but, you know, it, it happens. But not, not... That sounds well interesting. All right, should we get into it then? So we are here with Lorena Padrone from ECD. So James Trainer, uh, MD of energy conscious design and architectural practice he joined us he's getting on for two years i think so yeah we are delighted to to have another uh one of your number on on the show you are head of sustainability there that's right isn't it i am yes so the reason you're on today is you met alex at the building center in london at their retrofit day isn't it yeah well family day (laughs) Yes, uh, as part of the Retrofit 23 uh, exhibition 
program. Yeah, yeah. I took I took my uh, my four year old there to uh, start. I, I wanted to start him early, really, uh, to understand what it meant to do good retrofits and have uh, very good buildings. And uh, yeah, I think he. Uh, He's maybe starting to get it. At least he played a lot with those Jenga blocks and uh, he really, really liked the models that you guys created as well. Yes, we were asked by by um, the building center to host um, a retrofit day for, for families, for children, um, give some presentations about climate change. Hopefully we didn't, you know, scare them too much. <laughs> and um, we had some models and some activities, fun, fun things to do with. And yes, I brought my, my son as well, Alex as well. And, you know, it was such a, a good and inspiring day for everyone. I think when, so when we had a chat after you two had met up, the conversation that we had was like, what is a head of sustainability? Because like we've got... I mean, I mean, I'm sure plenty of people have all sorts of heads of sustainability in their LinkedIn contacts and networks. But it's one of those titles that it it could mean an awful lot of things. So we thought it would be an interesting gambit for conversation to find out. Well, what does a head of sustainability even do? Mm-hmm. Yes, I um I've been head of sustainability at ECD for about seven years since 2016. So I, I was doing the role whilst running projects full time. So, you know, the, the head of sustainability hat was um, somehow like on my my own time. <laughs> Whenever my 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 official role wa- allowed me to. But yes, it, it wasn't until earlier this year that I'm now full time head of sustainability. So I'm not running projects myself anymore, which is a bit bittersweet because um, that's that's also you know I enjoy that as well, but um, I can have much more impact in, in sort of what I do, um, being head of sustainability full time. And so some of the things that I do is that um, um, we have a sustainability working group um, um, that uh, I lead, and we from there we provide training to staff. Um, in-house or, or we arrange external training, we identify their training needs. Um, um, we have a, an intranet, uh, which is like a sustainability hub where we have resources, guides, news, we have our own sustainability newsletter internally. Um, we keep the, the videos of all the training, um, that we do internally as well. So we have, we have, uh, and I, I sort of took charge of that and, and keeping that updated for everyone. So um, I, I review the projects um, that we have in the practice in terms of sustainability. I, I work on bits and marketing and I attend and present at conferences and industry events. And part of what I do as well is um, organizing the Internal Sustainability Awards. They are called Energy Conscious Design Awards and, and we submit our own projects <laughs> and we give each other prices and we we have a five-year sustainability plan uh, you know what where do we want to be as, as a company in terms of our sustainability goals in two three five year time and you know how to achieve the architect declare points and the rba 2030 climate challenge and yes you know on top of that i also have you know other sort of associate director responsibilities and although i'm not you know, running projects myself, like big projects myself anymore. Um, 
I'm, I'm still overseeing some projects as well. So I get to see a bit of everything. And that's that's great as well, because I have a, a more general view of what's going on in, in the office across all projects. So so do you have a, a say, I suppose, or do people come and ask you for advice for, for their projects in terms of sustainability? Yes, it's, it's sort of part of what I do, but I, I, I don't do that by myself. I do it with all my, my uh, wonderful colleagues within the sustainability working group. And we share that that work amongst ourselves. So what you're describing is like a strategic role that sits sort of on top of the the business functions, offering strategic guidance for the organization itself, educating within the organization, incentivizing progress in line with presumably the, the strategy that you are defining and the the external factors that are influencing you like architects declare. But I mean, the, one of the things I'm interested in is like you said at the start that you were sort of doing this job anyway before it was your job. Like you were doing it whilst yeah. you were doing your work, which the, I am yeah. assuming must be the case for lots of people. Yeah. So you, you got an MA in sustainability or sustainable design? Yes, uh, in like, uh, sustainable design. I was architect. Yeah. So that was 15 years ago. So like that's that's a trajectory from becoming qualified to assuming responsibilities, to this being like an actual job, not just a job you were doing because you wanted it to happen in the industry, but like a job that, you know, there weren't really, you didn't really see so many head of sustainabilities anywhere five years ago. No. Um, Just to tell you a little bit uh, about me, I I was an architect back in Venezuela. I had my own practice back there over 15 years ago. I won a scholarship. And yeah, 15 years ago, uh, I came to do a, a master in sustainable design, sustainable architecture here in the UK. And back then, I was introduced to the the world of Passive House and PHPP even. Um, I used PHPP uh, 15 years ago to do my dissertation for the master. And um, I had a, a great tutor. I don't know if, you've, if you know her. Her name is uh, Sophie Postmarkers. We you know, know her. Uh, well, I don't know her personally. As an author, Jeff talks about her. Yes, no, she is wonderful. And she was truly inspiring for me. And um, yeah, I owe her so much. She, there were many students doing the master's back then. I think we were four in total. And I'm still very good friends with two of them, uh, Marion Baeli. Ah, I know, you know, she's been on the yeah. podcast. And Georgia Laganoko, uh, who is head of sustainability at Hopkins. So I guess, you know, Sophie was good. <laughs> yeah, illustrious really, company. Yeah, she really inspires us. Um, and uh, back then, everything, you know, around um, sustainability was new to me. E- even I remember the day that I heard about the concept of insulation, like the first day, the first time I heard about that, because coming from Venezuela, you know, a wall is you know, a block work or brick work and plaster boards on the inside and or, or wet plaster on the inside and, and just uh, render on the outside. You know, it's, a wall is, is much simpler and the same with roots and all building components. So, uh, you know, I, I knew a lot about architecture, instruction engineering, project managing, you know, how to run projects and things like that, but not so much about carbon factors of fossil fuels and, and all those things. And I remember sort of everything started seeing the world a bit differently. Um, like, you know, uh, Neo, 
in the the Matrix movie, like you start seeing <laughs> everything like zeros and ones, yeah, and like your eyes open and you see things differently. So yeah, no, it it was uh, incredible. Uh, and then a few years after that, uh, I joined ECD, and it was you know a perfect fit for me. Um, it was you know the place to be. Uh, and shortly after, I started working on Wilmcote House. Um, you know, Wilmcote House was my my first baby. I I then had oh, wow. two more. I then had two more babies, real ones. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it was it was sort of my my first baby. Like I really, you know, I I, I had many projects before uh, completed, and I had many projects after completed. But it was the first one that I truly said, you know, wow, I'm really proud of that. So um, for listeners who may not have traveled that far back, when we spoke with James Trainer back in 2022, January 2022, that episode's about Wilmcote House, amongst other things. But that was that was the first, was it the first large-scale Enerfit retrofit for social housing in the UK? Re- yes. And in the world with residency and occupation. Oh. Ah. So there's always a first, isn't it? And it was a massive success as well. It was, yes. Um, we're really proud of that project uh, as a company. And um, I can tell you more about it, about um, about the monitoring and POE and, you know, in a little while. Back to what where you were asking me about sort of my, my trajectory, uh, my story somehow. Um, so, yeah, I then um, became a, a certified passive house designer. And so I was doing all the calculations in-house, all the energy calculations, all the PHPP and body carbon calculations. And, you know, I was the sustainability go-to person in the office doing, you know, having the sustainability hat on most of yeah. the time. Um, so, yes. And then I, I I became head of sustainability, as I mentioned, and, but also whilst running projects full time. So it was a bit tricky. Well, that's a lot to have to manage. I mean, even an organization like ECD, where, well, I mean, it's in the name, isn't it? Energy Conscious Design, where that's baked into the proposition from the start. Having to, I suppose the thing I'm trying to get at is, one, even in an organization like that, one has to build a case to justify spending so much time on a nebulous concept like sustainability. Like we can all we can all point to what it looks like in oh, aspects of it look like, but like there's not one clear defined concept, certainly not one that is easily applied to businesses. So one of the things that really piqued my interest when we had that chat was the the fact that even you in that organization, with your qualifications, your background, and you this like like Neo, your eyes have been open to the the instead of binary, it's the building physics around yes. you even you had to make a case to become to yeah. to assume the role of a head of sustainability like i'm curious about how well i mean there must be loads of people going through similar positions just flapping about trying to work out like how we're going to do this i'm curious about your experience of driving that sort of change well we have a, a group called heads of sustainability across architectural practices and it's it's an amazing group, and we it's a it's it's a rare thing. It just I I don't know if that happens in other sectors or other heads of that are you know grouping together to share practices, research, knowledge, priorities, what we're yeah. doing right and what we're not doing right. 
and you know collaborate. Um, I know that heads of technical, sorry, a group of heads of technical um, is emerging and sort of like a spin-off from the group of heads of sustainability. But yeah, I think it's it's key. We, it's, it's helping all of us to step up our game, our collective game, improving our practices, you know, all together. And um, so, what is this group? So this is like, oh, hi, Jeff. Jeff uh, has joined us. Sorry, I'm late. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Jeff. Just had to pick up my my wife was at the dentist, so I had to pick up um pick up my kids from school. So scuttle back here. So uh, we were just talking about the Heads of Sustainability membership group, working group that uh, Loriana's... Oh, you two, you haven't met, have you? No, we no, haven't. No, I've, I've heard of you. Yeah, same way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, well, uh, Jeff, Loriana, Loriana, Jeff. Uh, yes. Thank you cool. for the wonderful Fussy House Plus magazine. Oh, well, <laughs> you're very kind. I, uh, yeah, uh, you, you. I'm glad to know this, uh, that it, that's... You like it, um, yes. yeah. Yes, I do. Thank you so much. Yeah. So this this group, like, is it just heads of sustainability architectural practices, or is it? I'm just trying to like, if this is something people can join, like a forum to share knowledge like this. It is a forum. You you sort of have to be head of sustainability or sustainability lead in our architectural practice, and you have to know another one that can invite you in. <laughs> and it's truly truly amazing and it's helping all of us to be able to you know understand what the others are doing what we need to do better you know and giving us for for some of the smaller practices it's giving them the sort of the evidence to go to their um, directors and say look these companies are doing this this and that we need to do the same and it's really good for the, the improvement of everyone. It is interesting, this idea of a working group where people are prepared to share knowledge. I was talking to... Competitors. Oh, I had a conversation with uh, someone who's involved in training last week, and they were describing a situation where, I mean, the sort of training, well, sustainable training in sustainable design and building like the passive house related building physics stuff and they they described how people from different sectors how differently they behave within a teaching environment and people who do construction they they don't like sharing knowledge like the actual building organizations so it's really heartening to hear how architectural practices are interested in it well, um, I would say that we have found um, to the contrary in the magazine over the years, um, and I think it maybe it's something about the the passive house community specifically. Um, when we profile a building, we invariably look for you know detailed construction shots, um, de- very detailed des- descriptions of how the buildings were built and plans and construction details. So we have these. In fact, we don't make enough noise about this at all. But we've got for. In hundreds of buildings that we've we've profiled now, we've got um, online image galleries um, of uh, construction details. Most of the projects we publish, we have galleries of construction details showing how they address the airtightness, the thermal bridging, and so on, and um, and fitting the building services in and around this and stuff. Um, and I think there's a generosity. It's you can't say it's uniformly there, um, but 
generally there's a generosity among people in in this space and i think there's a kind of a recognition that we're kind of part of a movement and that that we have such you know the the, the crisis that we're facing the kind of existential scale crisis that we're facing <laughs> requires us to to stop being you know uh jealously guarding our own work um because you know if we share information this way we can learn from each other you know and we'll all have more work and better work and better outcomes so yeah uh, i i don't know if i i think within the sustainability uh, and particularly the passive house community uh, i think we we are good at that not sure about sort of other construction sectors uh but yeah um yeah i agree with you it's markedly less so when we move away from passive house and i think i think it's i think there's two factors here part of it is generosity the other part is confidence um uh <laughs> when we move away from passive house projects and we look for detailed information about projects um sometimes it's remarkable how little information the architect may even know about uh about the spec the build spec they may hand over that to the contractor sometimes you know um and um i'm thinking of one don't know if i've mentioned it before but i'm thinking of one um architectural award winning building sustainability award winning building um in ireland um where uh the architect who approached us about publishing it in the magazine couldn't tell me what the u values were you know i mean that seems really basic information that you'd expect an architect who was promoting this project as a really sustainable building and they couldn't even tell me that they had to go to the contractor for that information you know so is this part of so Lariana, like in terms of being head of sustainability you referenced the like sharing of knowledge to promote better outcomes in terms of the 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 buildings themselves like performance of the building and for the occupants so is this something that has become part of the role like helping uh helping <laughs> working with the construction organizations like the, the people who are actually delivering the building to deliver better outcomes like working out how to do that rather than just hand it over yes uh, and we as part of the whole SHDF funding we are working more closely with uh with some contractors and we are we are really truly partners for the delivery of these projects that i think compared to i don't know 10 years ago i think i can see a difference you know not sort of trying to fight with a contractor and try to get our way but just yeah, yeah. finding the solutions together and i i i, I do see a, a big a big leap from where we were uh, many years ago. Well, I think like what Jeff described it being, so Passive House in particular, it is a fairly rarefied community of people who are hands-on, who to one extent or another have a sort of multidisciplinary experience because one has to engage with the building physics. It's not just putting buildings up, it's understanding how they work and under understanding all, like taking a holistic view. Yeah, you know. and and I was telling you that you know uh, I I uh, the first time I used PHPP was during my masters oh, fifteen years ago, and you know uh, and I use it to model the the the, the project that uh, that I was doing for my dissertation, 
And uh, over the last few weeks, I've been invited uh, by the University of Nottingham to give some lectures and workshops to students, uh, both in the London campus and the, and the Nottingham campus. And the, the lecture wasn't retrofit. Uh, and I'm, so, you know, of course, mentioned Pathio House and Enerfit and PHPP. And I sort of suggested to students to, to use PHPP to model their own projects. And they couldn't figure, they said, no, we, we don't have access to that. And I said, like, if I had access to that 15 years ago, I'm sure you can find a way to have access to it now, um, through your practice that, you know, many of them were still linked to practices and for, you know, us, I mean, also the university should probably provide a copy. And, you know, it's, it's really important to, to design nowadays to really, uh, interrogate the building make it helps you with the decisions that you need to make when you are designing. Uh, and I was telling them, you know, you don't need to rely on an engineer to to help you with all these things, and and you can do it yourself if if you can just try to learn. Could someone explain what uh, PHPP is, please? Yes, PHPP is a passive house planning package. It's the software used to design. And passive house and NFH projects. It's an, uh, a huge, massive spreadsheet in Excel that helps you to create an energy model of a building and you can test different design options and, you know, different U values, different types of fabric. And it can really help you design better buildings in a practical, but also objective way it's interesting because um when you look at um at tools like sap in the uk the, the national methodology and deep in ireland the organizations who own them uh, certainly in the case it's the case with deep in ireland and i believe it's the case with sap in the uk that uh that the responsible organizations which would be the bre in the uk uh insist that they are not design tools they are compliance tools they are used as design tools, oftentimes, um, but they're not necessarily fit for purpose for that. And 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 there's a nervousness uh, from the from the authority kind of in charge of them for them being used in that way because of their, I suppose, potential deficiencies in terms of uh, of understanding. I mean, the thing you know, the, the, the thing that that gets me is that, uh, and it, you know, PHP tends to resolve this in in a kind of a blunt enough way is that when you're designing a building. You have different user types you may have, different use profiles for the building. In the new issue, we're we're publishing um a couple of, of them actually. We've got a couple one project which is an extra care facility. Uh uh, so you've got elderly, vulnerable people who tend to be indoors much more of the time um and need higher uh, minimum temperatures and need lower maximum temperatures too. They, they, there's a tighter band that they can accept from a temperature perspective. And then the other one we've got is an extra care, sorry, is a, a play cafe. So you're dealing with at the other end of the spectrum, young kids, you know, who, uh, and, and a building that might have high loads of, of people coming in. They're quite challenging. And, uh, it's, it's really important that the design I, I, well, I don't know what you think about this, Loriana, but, um, you know, do you think that there's a need to have, from a design perspective, an ability to actually think about the end use and, and, uh, and, and, and respond accordingly? Definitely. And it really depends on the type of building they use. And you can modify the, the, the target temperatures within PHPD, for example. Well, this is, like leads us naturally because like a, Big part of the Wilmcott House job 
the residents weren't decanted. They were in situ. So to minimise disruption, I mean, it still causes plenty of disruption because the work has to actually be done to people's homes while they're in there. In order to minimise the disruption, you are reliant on the the suppliers themselves, the contractors who are carrying out the measures. So there is an outcome that needs to be addressed in terms of keeping residents happy and keeping them engaged with the process. And then to that, that point that we've touched on very briefly already, the focus on actual outcomes for the residents in terms of the building performance, which requires engagement and commitment to deliver the, the post-occupancy evaluation. I mean, in this case, mid-occupancy evaluation too. Yes, uh, and, and you mentioned uh, something there about retrofit being done to residents, and, and that reminded me of something that um, Tanya uh, <laughs> said uh, recently in the podcast, that, you know, you try to do retrofit with the residents or for the residents, but they feel that it's been done to them. And, and sometimes there's a lot of uh, resistance, and that doesn't help things. And, you know, the number of times that I've been doing like door knocking on tower blocks uh, and I could just get door slam on my face. Is it so, worth at this stage just stepping back and uh, for our listeners very, very briefly describing what Wilmcote House is? We've talked about Wilmcote House previously on a previous yeah. episode of the podcast, so we don't necessarily need to go into it, it all in that way. But I think yeah. talking about the value of POE, post-occupancy evaluation, in terms of that project, because one of the most interesting parts I have learned since we did that episode, for which I was thoroughly ill-prepared two years ago, is that like the post-occupancy evaluation itself was a key part of the project's deliverables. Like It wasn't just something that was tacked on. Like It was an essential part of the project, which is rare in and of itself, because Hardly anyone in construction likes having their homework marked. Well, this this is why I wanted to get to to uh, to understanding very simply what the project is, what the brief was, and when you talk about, for instance, decanting uh, residents, you know, um, was that part of the brief from the outset? Did that inform these decisions that were taken in terms of the approach to how you retrofit, or did it was it a, a benefit that, that that occurred from that? But basically, we're talking about a, a massive block of flats in Portsmouth, right? Um, it's. Owned and managed by Portsmouth City Council in a deprived area of the city. Uh, lots of fuel poverty in in the block and in, in the near area uh, back then, and, and I'm sure um, to some extent now as well. So Wilmcote House, it's an 11-story high tower block of three interlinked towers with uh, 100 masonets and flats uh, as well on the ground floor as well as so in total 111 units and we were asked by the council to provide a deep retrofit they did their own business case analysis to understand if a deep retrofit was going to be more cost effective than demolition and replacement with a new structure and there were many reasons why they found that it wasn't going to be cost effective over a 30-year plan um, so, you know, not, not immediately, but over a 30 year lifespan. So they, they, they found that having to decant the residents, that's a long period of time, finding alternative accommodation, uh, then demolition of the building and rebuilding of the, you know, it's, it, it's uh, many costs associated to, to that as well as time, 
and many variables as well that could complicate matters. Also, we cannot really uh, build to the same levels of density, so probably we would need to buy additional land for accommodating the same number of people. But anyway, so um, the the council always decided that the retrofit had to be done with residents in occupation, and that was part of the brief. And we worked with different organizations to do monitoring before, during, and after the works. So uh, with uh, particularly with the University of Southampton and the London School of Economics. And um, so before the work started, the University of Southampton, a PhD student, did some monitoring on the, on the towers. And uh, she found that people weren't heating their homes to the minimum World Health, Health Organization levels, uh, the, the minimum required temperatures of 18 degrees for bedrooms and 21 for living rooms. Uh, and that was because of fuel poverty. You know, they, people didn't have enough money to, to pay for the heating. So the many people were living in temperatures of around 14 degrees as normal during winter time. Some, le- you know, the, 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 the temperatures varied from 11 to 19, 20. So there were all sorts of uh, differences, but generally many people uh, were living uh, with uh, 14 degrees. And there were lots of mold condensation, leaky windows and, and health problems. And more than half of the masonets um, failed to reach that sort of minimum t- standards uh, of indoor temperatures. So uh, it was interesting this study, but because she predicted and calculated, because predicted sometimes sounds like, you know, I put a finger out in the air, but um, she calculated that for a retrofit and for any other deep retrofit of this type of social housing with fuel poverty, that uh, we were never going to be able to provide a carbon savings as initially thought, um, because people weren't, weren't heating, were not heating before, and therefore there's no carbon to be reduced because the residents are not really using uh, enough energy in the first place. Mm. So it seems obvious now, but you know it wasn't so much back then, and she had to write a paper about it <laughs> to to say like you know because uh, back then with with the you know the the basic calculations we were predicting energy savings of up to eighty five percent for the space heating demand, but that would have only been the case if the residents were properly heating their homes before. And that wasn't the case. So the the energy savings are not going to be as sort of expected. And, you know, and the operational carbon savings are are going to be much smaller than in compared with a building without fuel poverty. But at the end of the day, carbon savings are not the ultimate goal in most social housing retrofit projects anyway, because we have residents living in 14 degrees conditions and now they are living in 2021 with no active heating. They weren't heating before. They are still not heating for the same reasons. They still don't have, you know, money to heat the properties, but they don't need to heat the properties. And we have found that for many of the flats, if not most, they are not using their heating at all. Amazing. So I think we need That's to think story, about yeah. this. I think we need to think about this in a specific way, right? Um, so being able to heat your building to a minimum kind of level of not being dangerously unhealthy at you know i'm setting a low bar here um should be a basic human right okay so i think we can probably all agree on that um so 
the point is, if we weren't retrofitting it, um, how much carbon would be released if they were achieving that basic human right level? That's what you benchmark against in terms of 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 this, because in other words, um, it is dysfunctional. Yes, I know, Dan, you'll be able to to piss and moan about how with your current <laughs> nobody cares, um, but leave them aside for a second. The point should be that you assess it against that. You say, well, look, we have a duty of care to these people to to uh, enable them to be to, to 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 not have their children and elderly people in conditions that might kill them or 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 severe, severely impact their lives. And then we think from that perspective, how do we make improvements? How do we how do we deliver those conditions without having that carbon penalty? I think that's the way I would try to frame it, at least. Well, I was going to moan about something else, but definitely related. <laughs> like, you know, it's a given that the government doesn't care. We all know that. It was more that uh, all too often, and again, this is why I sort of laud this particular program of work. We we conceive of a project or consider a project following its conception in a way that enables its appraisal, so the understanding of its success or failures within a very narrow band of uh, metrics. So this one, it was conceived in terms of energy, cost, and carbon. The, in the way we are talking about it now, I, I know there was there was more to it, and we will we will sort of get to that at some point. But like I, I'm minded of the conversation we had when we were at that uh, the carbon light standards meeting with the the folk at the AECB. When so we were talking about carbon light, the the building standard, the the guidance which is being developed at the moment. We were talking about how to how it should be presented. And how it, I mean, we were talking about how it should be branded. And in the course of the conversation, it was like, well, how is it actually being used? That was the question that came to be asked. And like, all right, how is this being presented to an architect's customer? So we were speaking to Mark Siddle, so eminent passive house architect, and he described using the carbon light standard, but using it to focus on the the uh, the residents' needs or the residents' yeah. motivation, oh, yeah. and like in terms of carbon or cost reduction or building performance or health and well-being, and ostensibly, like no matter which angle he he sells the project to the client from, it's the same project, isn't it? <laughs> you reduce demand, and the measures by which you reduce demand improve all the other metrics. But like it's it's interesting that the the client themselves defines which metric is important to them, and they might not recall all of the other ones. Yeah, in this case for for the council, they really wanted to improve sort of the residents' life and health and and reduce uh, damp and mold. They needed to replace the windows anyway, so you know uh, there there were certain factors that uh, maintenance issues that were really desperate in, in some ways and they needed to do some of the works anyway. So they decided quite cleverly to go for the retrofit um, and they, they realized that it was going to save them money on the long term. Um, so, uh, and so we monitored the, the sort of the, the hard data and, you know, temperature and relative humidity and CO2 and all that, but also with the London School of Economics, um, they, they did, um, 
those more soft questionnaires and, and they, they looked at the social aspect of the retrofit before, during and after. And they, they had a sample of residents that they did the questionnaires that, that they got in touch with for, for the surveys. Okay. So, um, I was, I, I was telling you about the, the, the study done by the University of Southampton before the start of the work, but they also, and a different team, uh, another PhD student, they also did monitoring during and, and after the works were completed. And he did, uh, monitor, uh, on several flats, uh, during summertime and wintertime over a few years. And, uh, he, well, he basically found that the, the, the maintenance were performing really well. But what do I mean by that? He had a, a super, a great graph, a super, you know, easy, uh, and simple graph showing the number of days a year requiring heating to achieve the minimum temperatures of World Health Organization temperatures. And uh, before the retrofit, it was 160 days a year. And after the retrofit, it was zero. <laughs> so just with uh, the internal heat gains and with the solar heat gains, the, the flats were going to achieve the minimum temperature. But he also had a, a graph showing the internal temperatures from, from one flat of someone that um, didn't have the sort of economic uh, means to pay for heating before. So they couldn't pay for the heating before. And this person lived in temperatures of ranging between 11 and 19 degrees. And after the retrofit, this person, again, no money to heat. But after the retrofit, the temperatures were recorded between 19 and 22 degrees. So that, to me, is the, the value uh, of retrofitting in a few poor home. And uh, with that, you're, of course, eliminating damp and more and improving health and well-being outcomes. And um, and people can now use the whole the whole masonet, both floors. They don't have to cramp into one space because they can just afford to heat one room only. And these are some of the... The feedback that we have received as well, and, and it's truly uh, incredible. It's amazing. I, I feel like the council, with this project at least, dodged a bullet because the project's it's finished a couple of, a few years now at this stage, isn't it? If you if they were seeing temperatures in some flats as low as eleven degrees when energy was cheap, what the hell would they have been last winter? How many more homes would have been falling down to those conditions? And how much of that is, uh, have we seen across um, the poorly insulated housing stock? And what are the consequences in terms of repair and maintenance and the health sector and all this kind of crack, you know? Um, yeah. and, and also, you know, summers are getting warmer and winters are getting colder. And and, and for the summer uh, scenario, uh, the same, same PhD student had a, a graph showing the internal temperatures during the heat wave of June 2018. And the entire temperatures were showing to be stable between 22 and 27 degrees when the outside temperatures reached 32 degrees. And I was just thinking about this the other day, you know, 2018 and last year, 2022, the maximum temperatures were 40 degrees. So in only four years, the, the maximum temperature raised by eight degrees. And, you know, I'm, I'm scared about what what's coming up in the future like are we designing to worse heat waves in the future it's really scary and the temperatures you're talking about are they uh calculated or observed temperatures this is by sensors this is sort of these are observed temperatures as as high as 27 yeah um yes with sensors on different rooms within the maintenance 
That's that is impressive. I, I say that um, this building. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's it isn't is it he, it's heated by uh, to the extent that it is heated. Is it is it a centralized heating system? Is it district heating? No, it's electric heating. Ah, okay. That would that that will be a uh, help. I was talking to um, to someone I know, um, a woman I know who lives in a recently built low energy apartment building in Dublin, um, and I knew she'd had some overheating problems. She moved in last summer. Um, swanky new low energy apartments um, with district heating and uh, her and her daughter were boiling in there she said the builders had to come around and move the pipes outside their front door because they have high temperature hot water circulating through insulated pipes but they literally had to to, to, to move the pipes uh, to try and address the problem so it's it is it's a concern I have uh, and obviously they've circumvented that in this case uh, so you've no internal gains to worry about at all from uh, from circulation pipes in terms of of space heating at least you know I've been to uh, many buildings where the winter temperatures are so hot and people live with their windows open in the middle of winter time and actually there's a lot of education resident education uh, that's needed uh, some residents that were living in a block nearby Wilmcott house they had to be decanted and so many, you know some residents moved from a flat uh, a building with communal heating that they they paid a fixed price and the amount of heating was through the roof because also the control didn't work well so they couldn't really turn down the temperature so they were you know with their windows open in the middle of winter and they were used to living that way and then they moved to Wilmcott House an NFIT project uh, you know triple glazed windows airtight MVHR so you know it's a it's a different way of living and sometimes it's not easy for them and about window opening the in this summer um POE study the researcher found that they, they were comparing two different flats during the heat wave and the, the flat that opened the windows during the day had higher temperatures than the flat that didn't open the windows during the day so you know again it's obvious for so many people but it's good to put it out there i don't think it is obvious uh, all my neighbors i see them a lot of neighbors they have this uh, portable aircon system so they open their window and they put a pipe out there so they've got basically this instantaneous freshening but they're still leaving the entire house to slowly warm up and again we have to look to hotter countries where it's completely natural it's part of the culture in the morning you open everything up to get all the fresh air in and then as soon as the the sun hits the house you close everything down and you keep the cool air as much as possible within and open again in the evening it's really important to avoid when we've got a building stock that has not been designed and, a, and a, an industry that has not been paying attention to these issues at all really here. It's important that we avoid generalizing. Um, you know, if you have a poorly designed building that's got a lot of passive solar gain and no ability to shut it up to stop heat coming in, in that situation, maybe it is better to open the windows because you could be getting crazy, crazy temperatures. So obviously within passive house, the, the research tends to be with passive houses that it's better to shut them up um, uh, during the yeah, during the exactly. day, really you know, and on the, on the fabric. Yeah. And the point you made, Alex, about uh, about buildings where they have an air conditioning system as well, you know, uh, there's something. It's like the whole car leaving your car windows open and the air conditioning at the same time. You know, it's kind of so. This is something of particular interest at the moment. I mean, we're scheduling two episodes about shading at the moment because shading shouldn't be a seasonal issue <laughs> because. Uh, because, you know, the sun's there all year round. It's just particularly hotter in the summer. So that relates directly to your point about how temperatures are changing. The climate is changing globally and locally. And Jeff, like your point, it is a concern of us all. Like, oh, we don't know where this is going exactly. 
And we might not be preparing well enough for it. Like even down to uh so the lack of shading is one thing, but the types of materials we use, like uh, spray foam insulation. Like I'm not just trying to have a dig at spray foam insulation. It has application in certain circumstances and it's perfect. However, like where VOCs aren't an issue, so volatile organic compounds, like the toxic part of the spray foam insulation, they aren't an issue now and they aren't an issue within the certain temperature thresholds we exist in now. But like things are going to change. I'm just wondering, like, so this working group that you're a part of, are you guys bumping heads and thinking into the future like this? Yes, we've had some conversations about future climate scenarios. <laughs> and, uh, and, and for the record, Loriana's head is in her hands at this point. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, future climate scenarios always is a bit of a, a headache. But yeah, uh, and as part of the Retrofit Academy and Retrofit Designer course, there's also a section on avoiding overheating and dynamic modeling and, you know, risk assessments uh, on retrofit projects. So it's it's all really important. And um, as you were saying earlier, Jeff, about not generalizing as well, like, you know, in a tower block, it's easier to, to, to get sort of nighttime cooling and porch ventilation because you don't have the security issues. You can leave your windows open. And you're going to have lots of, you know, cross ventilation and good airflow. But in, uh, you know, in a bungalow or a house that is, you know, by a main road with security issues or noise issues, that's it's pretty impossible. And even within your tower block, it'll be a different rule for the for for one that's high for elevated yeah, to one that's that, yeah. that's down below. You know, um, yeah. I think we as a, we're as a species, we're we're prone to kind of looking for magic bullets and the quick fixes, you know, because we don't have the attention spans to it, but they just, people just have to, have to engage and understand that. And it's rewarding to do so, you know. Now, to tell you a bit about the, the latest POE that we did this year, basically we were asked by uh, Marion Bailey and Julie Godfrey, who um, are working with City on a, a publication and study, a research project, Retrofit Revisited. I don't know if that's going to be the final title, but they are looking at 10 different projects that were retrofitted uh, many years ago. And they asked us for, you know, for Wimcott House to be one of them. And so there was uh, a bit of funding to the monitoring area this year during the winter, in the beginning of the year. And I, I, I will, I think I mentioned this to you the other day that how difficult it was to find a flat, a masonet for this POE exercise that we did this year. Uh, many years ago, it was easier for, for, for the Southampton University sort of crowd to find the flats. I don't know this year, um, but it was a difficult process. The, the council sort of pre-screened 13 residents. So we started with 13 and then eight, only eight of them were contactable. Uh, with no language barrier, um, and actually responded in the first instance. But out of those eight, only six, six lived, um, in, in the tower or for over a year, which was a requirement. And out of those, only four were not affected by health issues that precluded from participating. And out of them, only three had not switched electricity provider within the last year. And out of them, only one was in possession of utility bills. So from 13, we are, we're down to one. Uh, and this, then this person drop out without explanation, despite, you know, 
the offering incentives and cash and vouchers and all of that. So we had to go back to another another resident that is using a prepayment meter, and we had to sort of calculate their energy use in, in a different way. But so therefore, the results are not representative because we have a hundred masonets and we just found one uh, one masonet to do the POE. But you know, we also use off gem uh, postcode data. Like we, the, each tower has a different postcode, so we use the, the the energy data for the whole block across many years. So from 2013 to 2021, and, and we saw how um, the energy use uh, changed over the years. The other dynamic to consider there is, uh, I gather there is research to show that prepayment meters affect energy consumption. Very obviously, I live in a, a flat that's got a prepayment meter. I know what my usage is. I can look at it daily and I get reminders. Uh, I top up by 50 or 100 euro or whatever, um, and I get uh, a reminder uh, that the credit's running low. I don't get this nasty surprise. Yeah, I, yeah, I pay a higher unit price. So I'm not, I'm not saying it's the right solution. I don't get this situation when prices go absolutely crazy as they as as they have done. You know, we we we're on um, district heating as well. Uh, see, a combined heat and power plant based uh, 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 district heating, and the suppliers I think hadn't purchased forward. You know, uh, with wholesale gas um, in the way that the bigger utilities had. So when Ukraine happened, they were fully exposed to it and, and paying paying through the nose per kilowatt hour. So uh, so we were very badly affected in, in that regard. What we don't get, the one positive, I suppose, uh, and I think it does affect behavior, is we don't get a shock, you know, every two or three months um, in terms of, of a high bill. You're aware of your consumption, and that can only affect consumption, surely. Yeah, but it strikes me that this is all the POE part and this, and the just the concept of sort of demand reduction. They're, I mean, obviously, they're all interlinked, but this, it feels like post- Occupancy evaluation needs to be something that is baked into all building projects from now until forever. And not as in like some part of the brief. Yeah, yeah. And not as in some sort of potentially punitive exercise in monitoring poor people, as is the often the case in any project driven by UK government, but more as in like appreciating a building's performance. So we know uh, organizations like businesses that offer simple sensoring systems, monitoring air quality through CO2, temperature and humidity. And as key performance indicators of the performance of a building, they are great. If you can ally that to energy consumption in a way that, as Jeff has suggested, like alerts people as to how much energy they are consuming in a meaningful manner. Like one of the projects we've been working on recently is regarding like an energy service proposition. And in the research we were doing, came across uh, is a user experience issue with immersion heating for hot water and the really poor user experience of having a switch on the immersion heater, which can be turned on and off, but it isn't clear which one is on or which one is off. <laughs> and it's it positioned in such a way as it could be switched accidentally, which did in fact result in a gargantuan energy bill in one instance. And if you have sort of POE and monitoring for optimization to the benefit of the resident, not sort of spying business by the energy company, 
you can have a, a means of making people's lives better in all sorts of ways. Like I'm often reminded of my mum back when she did such things. She was never leaving the house. She had a mobile phone and a, a crappy phone contract. And one day she accidentally turned her Wi-Fi off because she didn't know how to work a mobile phone. And she spent the next month like surfing the internet on a phone, like using 4G with a very meager data uh, allowance. And at the end of it, she had an astronomical bill out of nowhere and anger where embarrassment would have been otherwise because it was my dad telling her that she'd made a mistake. <laughs> so it resulted in a high bill, fury and discord in the home. And as Tanya was referring to on her episode the other week, Tanya Jennings, so much tension within households is caused by the cost of heating and the cost of eating. And there are, what's the opposite of a co-benefit? You know, there are all sorts of issues that are created from those, which could be, to an extent, ameliorated by an early warning system or an optimization warning system, helping system. I think I think that should start already. Like, it, it should be something that the energy companies should be forced or encouraged or, or whatever to supply. Like, we're all given these, uh, we're trying to get, everyone's trying to get, sorry, uh, uh, smart meters everywhere because they're the future they're easier they're, they're great for understanding what's going on blah 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 but what if we all had a little sensor that we that could all tell us oh by the way you know the the air quality in your home is becoming uh dangerously bad you know, have you considered open a window like early training or they're not training but early awareness systems like that would be incredibly useful for the, for the time when it comes to actually retrofit the how the building for people to go oh i get it it's going to sort of solve that thing where my graph or my my warning is coming on every hour just because i'm sitting in the room watching tv to, to never happening because actually the house is properly insulated properly ventilated there's no humidity problems i think it's part of the you know, our need to, to make people understand what's going on with the building because a building is is not just a home, it's that it's a system. Well, that's what I mean. It's like it, it's part of the POE yeah. setup yeah. rather than an energy setup. The energy is just a, a metric which affects in affects the performance of the building in a different way. It's or the, the outcome. It's the one we all talk about. And people are not aware of the the other things. Like not many people are looking, and I, I am doing it because I'm in my shed at the moment, and I haven't got my ventilation set up yet. So I can see that the uh, CO2 in, the, in in here is becoming quite quite dangerously high. So that's why you keep seeing me go away because I'm opening the door <laughs> to make sure that I've well, dangerous. Shed. How high is it getting? Uh, what are we at the moment? Uh, we have. Is he oh, feeling it's, sleepy? It's gone down to one thousand parts per million, and it was at three thousand just before. Well, I, I mean, I wouldn't. There's from what I saw. It used to be the case that the research was that it wasn't a you know, danger and CO high levels of CO two were were not the thing. It's it's not not good for you. But um, well, when but, I'm uh, doing my homework, I'm going to be sleepy, right? And well, there's that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, I think there was. I I did read recently some new research suggesting that actually it is more of a concern uh, than previously thought of. Lariana, I wanted to ask you this uh, just to pick up on Dan's point about whether sensors should be and monitoring should be uh, the case with all buildings. Do you think that should even be the case with passive houses? I mean, if they if we have enough evidence, you know, on on how they work, showing that they do work, is it necessary to, to, to be to be monitoring in those situations, do you think? There well, there are a few things that are at play. Um data protection as well. But for example, with this POE exercise that we did earlier this year, we found that the, the, the only flat that we were able to monitor had some high levels of relative humidity. 
well, not high, but you know, above what um, they should. Suboptimal. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and also some sort of higher levels of CO two as well. So that 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 was implying that the MBHR wasn't doing its job, and we were only able to find that out because we did the monitoring. But because the whole thing was anonymous, we weren't able to tell the the council, the landlord, like which flat was it. They didn't know the flat that we were monitoring. So I guess, you know, if they had the information, they could have just more simply like go and fix it. So, you know, they could have figured it out. They, you know, they, but it's just, it, you know, it's, it's a sensitive topic as well because it's like, you know, you're monitoring people and how they behave. But it's also a health risk issue as well. And uh, sometimes if residents don't necessarily know that their ventilation system is not working properly or it's working low at lower flow rates than they should, you know, they could have be having some some condensation problems or even more problems that um, I think it's the more monitoring of that type of data. I'm, I'm just talking about temperature, relative humidity and CO2. That's amazing. And, you know, it should be encouraged. Hmm. And even just to check on the, the MVHR and just to check if the ventilation is working as, as it should. But it is expensive and not all the retrofit properties and new build properties you know, can have it. So uh, it's a, it's an interesting topic. The other one, uh, have you been monitoring, uh, have you ever done any POE that's uh, including PM 2.5 as well? But this is, um, for listeners who don't know, uh, it stands for Particulate Matter 2.5, and it's like 2.5 refers to the, is it nanometers? I think it's like, it's the dimensions, I think, of the... The, time, uh, of, the, the size of the particle. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. And you, um, and it can be an issue, because you could have, you could have uh, a really well-ventilated building that's not filtering the supply air or not filtering it even to, to a sufficiently refined level where if your outdoor air is polluted, a higher ventilation rate could cause your indoor air quality to decline. You know, it's not necessarily the case that, that, that more ventilation of outdoor air is a good thing. You know, it's complicated, you know, and in, you, in other words, you could have a situation where the CO2 levels are low, where the relative humidity is low, but you're breathing toxic air. <laughs> Uh, uh, have you looked at PM two point five yet in any of your POE? No, no, not really. Well, you're in fairness. You're you know if you're dealing with projects where there's filters on the supplier, then you should be right. You and classified certified MBHRs have the best sort of type of filters compared to non certified lesser units. Okay, but, um, we're probably going to have to wrap up now. I think because we are. We are long and we are approaching the half hour and Alex is going to drop out completely in four minutes. So wave and say goodbye, Alex. Bye. Uh, so three more minutes. I've still got four minutes. Summing up, like more POA. The residents need to be built into the projects. What else? Well, I was we going to say, uh, I want to ask this. If there's a data protection issue here in terms of other people processing the data, what about finding ways to give the data to the resident, presenting it in a way that makes it accessible enough for them to actually, you know, understand it um, and use that to, to to try and inform their behavior. And and flag up any any risks, like for instance, like, oh, yeah, red flag. In the best example area. I saw, well, there was a there was a, a simple example. I don't know how effective this kit actually is, but there was a as a you may have seen there was an indoor air quality sensor. Uh, I think it was CO two again was being used um, called the canary, um, and it just looks like a canary. Um, and, uh, you know, drawing on the old canary in the coal mine kind of thing. Um, 
uh, Anna, where obviously as people would know, uh, uh, canaries were brought down to coal mines because if you had levels of uh, off-gassing, I guess, from the mines, um, dangerous, is it carbon monoxide, I'd, I'd assume, um, the canary would die and then that, that is your sign that things to, to, to get out. Um, so having a, a canary um, style sensor is a nice, simple, very, uh, you know. Um, is, it, is it great user experience, Jeff? I think it is. Oh, you know? excellent. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I remember it. It was a Kickstarter ages yeah. ago. A good, like one of the few good ones. <laughs> yeah. What do you think about that, though, Lariana? Kind of trying to uh, to uh, package it in a way, this information, you know, not just assume paternalistically that uh, that we, ha- we, we have to control the plebs. I know it can be problematic, of course, because you can be arming difficult, troublesome building users with, uh, you know, the kind of people who will who will have a gripe over anything. You're giving them ammunition to to uh, to to attack the the council or, or the landlord or whomever it might, you know, the private landlord or whoever it might be. Yes, there are <laughs> there are a few things there. I mean, one is that not not everybody likes to deal with sensors and like even in my own home. I am the one like, you know, checking the, the apps with the temperature for every room. And like, I, I, I do enjoy that, but not necessarily my husband. But, but we're talking here more about sort of a health uh, scenario and, and health risks of high in, uh, low temperatures or, or poor ventilation and, and other aspects and high CO2 levels, etc. Yes, I guess to, to sort of cir- circumvent the, the, the data protection issue, the residents could be the ones seeing that that red flag appearing, and then they would have to contact the their landlord. But as you were saying, uh, I don't know. Some people will complain about anything and everything, and they could, because they don't understand what they're seeing, they could just perhaps be scared or leave care about CO two levels in their home and think they are going to faint. That's that, lot- that is the other issue. You could be making yeah. people um, if or, if people are. You know, hypochondriacs, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. there's, there's a risk of, of people panicking every time uh, the yeah. CO2 level goes above a thousand. You know, um, you're expecting a lot of labour of the people first in trying to understand what's going on and data protection stuff. It can be overcome, like it's not that difficult to overcome. Like there's lots of people who are concerned because lots of people are really slack about how data is managed. But you bake in at the start of a project. Like a, a a long-term sign-off to this data is going to be anonymized or it's going to be aggregated. So you can only be identified as you will only ever be identifiable as one of a number in this in this building, this block, this cohort, whatever, man. Like all that stuff, I'm not suggesting it's very easy, but I'm stating it's not that hard. Like it's all well manageable. And if it becomes a a fundamental requirement of projects of this ilk, and not just of this ilk, in private uh, residential buildings. Like Octopus is doing it with its zero bills energy facility. Like all this stuff is well manageable. People are just terrified of data because they don't understand it. Yeah. And, it- and I guess Landos could be alerted that something is wrong somewhere and in this area, and they can go and check a number of properties to try to find out. And that's not a bad thing, I guess. I don't yeah. know. Like, like in this floor, <laughs> there's someone who maybe their ventilation system is not working properly. Go and, and check it. 
Yeah. Uh, we... the, the other thing, I, I, uh, sorry, just to just to stay on this, like um, we were we were telling um, a landlord that you know, as part of when when they go twice a year to replace the filters, uh, if this is a different landlord. Uh, can are you asking? Um, the company that's doing that service for you to check if the MVHR is is still working fine to the you know uh, to the flow rates uh, at least in the setting that it should be and hasn't been tampered with and not just only go in replace the filter and go out if that they had they had an extra check in there every six months that's that's perfect you know it's not it's not rocket science well it's it's not intrusive it's not disruptive it's not punitive it's just optimizing the system to everyone's benefit like uh who was it folk bale bale the guy we met last year jeff who he runs a monitoring package for commercial residential property or private prs sector stuff and yeah that's all they do so exactly what you described they can track it to a floor to a specific unit on a floor and interrogate like oh too much electricity is there something wrong here? Like the immersion heater being left on, example. Well, that was a, a social housing. Like you know, that's a that's an as standard product for PRS. Yeah. Um, or too little energy. Some you know, this person is not moving much or is not cooking. Yeah. And, get, and like you know, there might be some health issues there. Or you know, too little CO two, dead. Yeah. <laughs> which is the case, or vacated, which is often the case in social housing. Yeah. All right. Um, well, Lorana, thank you very much for joining us today. That's been really interesting. So in addition, if you are a head of sustainability or a sustainability lead, I mean, you can do some digging, but it's invite only. Good luck. <laughs> Get in touch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, have you got anything else to plug? Uh, anything coming up? Uh, obviously, the Retrofit Academy, Retrofit Design course uh, yes, that we talked really, about at the beginning. That's really exciting. And I'm really looking forward to that being out there and available for everyone. Um, it's going to be an amazing training course, uh, so needed to be able to do the, the large scale retrofits that we need to, to tackle and that we need to do in, in, in the country. Yeah, man. And, uh, look out for your work in the Marion Bailey and Julie Godois 10 retrofits revisited or whatever it comes to be named. We'll be having them on to talk about it. We had Marion on ostensibly to talk about that back in april i think ages ago now so yeah all right well um links to loriana and all the things will be in the show notes from us please if you get something out of this podcast you probably know someone else who will as well so please share it with them please review five stars nothing else will do it's not about us as needy as we are it's the algorithm it only cares about five stars and we would like this to reach as many people as possible join ACAM, join the aecb join the igbc uh ladies check her own space oh passive house plus that's it subscribe to passive house plus check it advertise yeah, if it's you a great can. christmas present for people as well for a subscription to the magazine there you go yeah so uh yeah, Loriana, you can now tell Jeff how wonderful a product it is. It is. It is wonderful. Yes. Thank you so much. We, we all appreciate it in the office. No, I'm 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 not joking. I mean uh, we we're really happy when it gets to, to our desk in the office and we go through it. 
Uh, and it's not exclusively passive house. The plus is all the other things related to things like retrofit, energy efficiency, more conscious design. And um, carbon, not, all that kind of crack. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, that's great. So, uh, if your office doesn't get it, you should be stamping your feet and shouting about why not. Right. I think that's it. Talk to us if you want to talk about any of this stuff or if you think there is someone we should be speaking to on the podcast who we haven't. We have a lot of people lined up. But uh, we just need the time to be able to do the recording, editing, planning, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, um, and there's the comms and talk. To, when Dan says talk to us, he means also the communications and strategy work that we we through the consultancy that we've set up off the back of this podcast, Zero Ambitions Partners. So we're doing really interesting work for me, at least. Anyway, and um, I think the clients we've got so far seem to be enjoying dealing with us. Um, <laughs> uh, so far, um, yeah, and. Um, you know, to help companies to understand and articulate and communicate in plain English where they're at sustainability-wise and where they need to go, you know? Yeah, yeah 100%. We do, we're doing all sorts of stuff. But we are just interested in talking to people as well. Yeah, it's true. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, like, we're not just fishing for work, although we are always fishing for work. I mean, you got to eat, haven't you? All right, well, uh, thank you for joining us, everyone at home. Cheers for joining us, Loriana. Thank you thank so much, Lariana. It was fascinating. No, thank yeah. you for having me. Cool. Cheers. All right. Bye.